Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Federal NDP leader Jigmit Singh has a plan to pay for Canada's pandemic response. Tax the rich, the richest companies which benefited the most from coronavirus specifically, and Canadians making more than $20 million. The Parliamentary Budget Officer estimates fewer than 14,000 Canadian families would pay that tax. It would cost $113 million to administer and bring in $5.6 billion to help cover the cost of keeping Canadians safe, healthy, and ultimately vaccinated. But how would it work? And what else is Singh suggesting? We started our conversation by talking about his push for the wage subsidy and rent programs for small businesses to continue past the end of the pandemic. But how long after? Well, really, this is one of those things where we want to make sure that businesses get the help they need, small businesses particularly, to stay on their feet. And we know that the impacts of the pandemic will continue for some time. For example, sectors like tourism and hospitality and festivals are going to be amongst the last to be able to return. So we want to basically have the flexibility to have supports continue so small businesses aren't forced to shut down when there's a lot of fear that they will shut down and never open up again. So is the idea that once all industry in this country is back on its feet, that's the time to declare the pandemic over and the subsidies and the assistance as well? One of the metrics I think that might be helpful for us is I spoke with the CFIB earlier today and they mentioned that right now businesses that they represent are operating or 31% are operating at, at full capacity. So 70% are not. So clearly that's a good indicator that uh, businesses still need help. My focus is really that we know the big box stores, the Walmarts, Costco, Amazon have done very well. Many of them have posted record profits, but your local community stores and businesses are the ones that have been harder hit. And I want to see supports in place that allow them to continue to thrive. So you're vowing to tax pandemic profiteering by large corporations. Right. I think very similar to how in the past world wars, we need to answer the question, who is going to pay for this pandemic and help pay for the recovery? And it certainly shouldn't be people that have suffered, workers that have been hard hit. It certainly shouldn't be small businesses that are wondering if they're going to close the doors or not. I've re read recent reports that one in six small business is worried about shutting down and never opening again. So it shouldn't be those businesses, but we know that there's certain businesses that have, ex uh, have exceeded what their normal profits would be substantially. And much like in the post-World War eras, we put in place taxes acknowledging that there are certain companies that were profiteering, whether they were doing it purposefully or not, they had massive profits and that they should be the ones that contribute more to the war effort or to the recovery effort. Similarly, I'm saying we know very clearly companies like Amazon have, have amassed massive fortunes during this time, and they should be the ones that contribute more. At risk of sounding like I'm defending Jeff Bezos, <laughs> um, when it came to the First and Second World Wars, um, part of that recovery effort and paying for the wars came in the form of remarkable economic growth that happened immediately after. I don't think we're expecting the same kind of response this time around. So how, how do you define pandemic profiteering and, and how do we actually go about figuring out what the right dollar figure is? Well, what we did in the past was uh, to, to work with the numbers. So it wasn't something that they got right, right away. But uh, one of the metrics that we're looking at is, for example, for companies that 
have, uh, we look at what their normal profit would be and the normal growth would be, and then look at what they're at and apply something like twice the corporate tax rate uh, as, a, as a one test. And that may not be enough. Maybe it needs to be higher. Uh, and if in some cases it's not high enough, we can tweak it. And that's what the post-World War uh, strategy was. They, they took a, an approach to find the right number and find the right way to get at the profiteering. They were flexible in starting off with a certain number and modifying it to get to the right point. I think we need to just acknowledge that certain companies have benefited tremendously from the pandemic and those that have, if someone's got to pay the price, which at the end of the day, someone does, it should be those that have profited, those that have done very well. So then how do you accomplish taxing pandemic profiteering? You said you won't draft legislation. But what we're proposing is to follow uh, the guidelines of what was done in the past. We think that it should be done. We need a commitment that that governments would do it. Uh, we have said if we are in government, we will do it and we would move forward with that um, with a potential liberal imposed or liberal provoked spring election. Uh, if in government, new Democrats would get to work immediately to address this, looking at those that are profited off the pandemic and uh, ensuring that they are the ones that are paying their fair share. So there's different measures, but it would require legislation at some point. As we continue this conversation about the small business side of the equation, Ottawa has frozen employment insurance rates for the next two years. That's expected to save about a, a billion dollars a year this year alone. In terms of, of what we need to do moving forward, we, we know that uh, there is there has been a different experience felt by different people that that uh, large corporate grocery stores, for example, saw big profits. We know that web giants saw big profits. And we know that small businesses, local community businesses are, are hurting. Acknowledging that and acknowledging the cost of this pandemic and that it is something that we're gonna have to deal with for some time now, the recovery is still gonna cost us money. We need to invest in a recovery that acknowledges women were hard hit so that women can return to the workplace. And that that means having more investments in things like childcare. With all of this, there is going to be a cost. And really the question comes down how we pay for it um, freezing hiring by the federal government is not going to be enough to really acknowledge the, the, the struggles that people are going through and the need for ongoing supports. And their approach really is in line with what we've seen in the past. There's two approaches that governments have taken, either austerity or raise taxes on, on working people. Uh, we're pro proposing a third option, which is to tax those that have done very well, those at the very, very top, the ultra-wealthy or the ultra-rich. Not to defend the any particular grocery store or what have you, but an argument is often made when we talk about taxing corporations that have done well is that if you do that, that leads to fewer new jobs for people who need them. What, what happens right now is a concentration of wealth into fewer and fewer hands, which is not good for competition, not good for creating more opportunities, not good for a diversified economy. So without acknowledging that the current approach has meant more and more wealth concentrated into fewer, fewer hands, we are going to lose out on local small businesses. We're going to lose out on opportunities to have a diversified economy. And we're going to see more and more wealth concentrated into fewer, fewer hands, which really at the end of the day, isn't good for workers, isn't good for society, isn't good for communities. And to acknowledge that that is the current trend, that's why we're proposing asking the very wealthiest and those who've, who've done very, very well in this time to contribute more so that we can ensure that there is more competition, that there are more local businesses that do well, that we contribute back into programs and services that help people. 
So under a minority government scenario, how do you push that minority government to accomplish what you're trying to set out? What we have been doing, putting forward the idea and letting people know that there are choices that governments can make and really defining those choices, that the current approach has massively benefited a, a small number of large corporations. They are the ones that have benefited in this pandemic and that absent a clear policy, they will continue to grow and it will be at the cost of small businesses. And having spoken with a lot of small business and, and their owners and spoken with workers, we know that without any ongoing systemic approach to this divide that's growing, that what we will see are small businesses shut down in local communities. And we will see companies like Amazon that make profit off of Canadians, but don't pay taxes here effectively get subsidized by the government. So not paying their fair share and not making sure that those that are making profits in Canada contribute to taxes in Canada is in a way effectively subsidizing these large corporations at the cost of the local businesses that people are so proud of in their communities. So uh, I think we have to take a strong stance on this. This sounds like policy platform discussions. <laughs> sounds like you're getting ready for an election. Well, I, I want to be ready if, if the Liberals uh, are falling through on what they've said so far. They've put out a really clear indication. Justin Trudeau told the party to be ready for a spring election. Uh, we've seen the Liberals turn a opposition day motion into a confidence vote, something that's pretty unprecedented. unprecedented. And we've seen uh, a, a very clear pattern of behavior where the Liberals are trying to provoke or look for an election. And I've been very clear. I think that is a wrong thing to do with the, the new variant spreading, with the third wave being declared in Ontario and Newfoundland and Labrador having moved their election date three times because of the new variants, I think this would be the wrong thing to do. And I've said that Justin Trudeau should be focused singly at, with a high priority on just getting everyone vaccinated, getting the doses required, and then also aiding in the vaccination process. Other provinces have managed to pull off elections during COVID, though. Well, the difference is, is that uh, the provinces that did so did so earlier when there weren't the variants, and they did so when the vaccines weren't available. So now with the vaccines available and now with the variant spreading, we're in a very different situation. And thus why Newfoundland and Labrador has had to move their election three times, their election date, not something we saw with New Brunswick or with BC. So there's a very different scenario right now with a, a more potent variant, which is more contagious with worse symptoms and already a third wave being declared where the majority of new infections in Ontario are the new variant. So given all of this, it's a very different scenario for an election. So I think, again, it's the wrong thing to do. We need to focus on getting everyone vaccinated. And after we fought this pandemic, vaccinating everyone, uh, we can consider the next steps. I still believe the goal should be to find ways to make parliament work for people. And that's going to be my, my focus. Well, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole is spitting nails over the lack of a federal budget. Is now the time to be counting brass tacks? Really, again, my priority is in this time, we obviously need to have accountability. We need to know where money is being spent, but we need to see the priority focused beyond getting everyone vaccinated. And that's why I've been very focused on that. Um, a couple other things that are also top of mind, help and support to people, help and support to small businesses and our seniors in long-term care. Really, those are the, are the key problems that we're up against, the key challenges, and everything we do should be focused on solving those problems. So then how do we hold a government to account without a budget? 
there's been a lot of different mechanisms that we've used. The committee hearings provide us with an opportunity to ask ministers questions. Uh, we look at each bill as it's presented and we can push forward changes to bills. And we've been successful in making a lot of changes happen. We were the ones that got the uh, CERB doubled from $1,000 as introduced by the Liberals to $2,000. We used our leverage to bring in paid sick leave. We were able to use the pressure as opposition to call out some of the conflict of interest and inappropriate decisions around we. So we have been able to use our, our platform and our position in opposition for accountability. Uh, there are other mechanisms. Uh, I'm open to a budget, but, uh, but I'm saying the focus now has to be on those key priorities, getting everyone vaccinated, making sure seniors are cared for, making sure people get supports and making sure we support small businesses uh, and making sure that the ultra wealthy are the ones that are paying their fair share. These are some of the key priorities that I want to focus in on. You have been quoted as saying you do not want an election, but you feel you are better positioned today than you were in 2019. How so? Again, I, I, to reiterate, yes, that's that's accurate. Uh, I absolutely do not believe it's the right thing to do to go to an election. And so we will not be triggering one. We'll be working on ways to make Parliament deliver the help that people need. That will be our focus, getting people vaccinated. But in terms of our re readiness, we have cleared our debt from the election in 2019. We have good fundraising numbers. Uh, I, as a leader, I'm, I'm uh, well-known across Canada and have, have provided... Uh, a strong vision about what we would do for people and how we've been fighting for people. We've got a strong track record that we can run on in terms of what we've been able to achieve for people. And uh, the other parties can't say the same thing over this pandemic. The conservatives really have nothing they can point to any tangible victory that they have fought and won for people, nor can the bloc uh, effectively point to anything that they've actually achieved for people. And we, I just can list rattle off four of our, our top our, our greatest hits in terms, of, in terms of victories that we won for people, doubling CERB, bringing in supports directly for students, making sure that the people are connected to their jobs by increasing the wage subsidy and covering more people's salaries so they can stay employed and bringing in paid sick leave, all things which New Democrats alone were able to push for, fight for, and achieve. And uh, other parties can't say that. So I think we've shown Canadians, when you vote for New Democrats, you get someone on your side willing to fight for you. And the other parties can't say the same. So it sounds like you're preferring, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to call it status quo, because that's really not what we're talking about here, but the idea that you can advance your agenda more without an election and be seen as a kingmaker. I believe that I can work to make parliament or fight to make parliament work for people now, and that that should be the priority. Uh, if it comes to an election, we'll do better than before. But for me, that's not my goal. My goal isn't to find a way to win more seats. My goal is how do I use the position I have to fight for more help, more supports, more of the things that people need. And, and that's what we've been doing from the beginning of this pandemic, single-mindedly focused on how do we help people. And that's how we've been able to achieve some really significant results for people. I've been going through the polling numbers and it's been I see that you're gaining percentage points across all the provinces, seemingly with every poll since 2019. To what do you attribute that? Where is this support coming from? I appreciate that you acknowledge that. Thank you. Uh, but I believe that uh, the support is coming from people seeing us fighting for them. At the end of the day, we have been fighting for people. And when you look at... But are at you pulling people out from the Liberal Party or are you pulling people up off their couches who otherwise wouldn't identify either way? It's hard to say where it's coming from. 
Um, but, but I can tell you, it's certainly come from people who are worried and they're afraid. And this pandemic has been very tough. And they've seen that, that myself as leader and, and we as a team, as New Democrats, have been really the ones that have been connecting to what they're going through and providing solutions to their problems. For small businesses, we're the ones that said that the Liberals tenant or landlord-based rent subsidy just didn't make any sense. If you're a business and you need help, you should be able to apply for the rent subsidy, not leave it in the hands of the landlord. So we were able to fight to improve that. We were the ones that realized early off that a 10% wage subsidy was not enough to keep people hired. And right now, many businesses say one of the things that is keeping them afloat is because they've got the wage subsidy. It keeps them in a position to keep people hired. So everything we've done in this in this pandemic has really been focused on how do we help people and acknowledging the struggles that they're faced with and providing real solutions for it. And I think that is something that has set us apart. The conservatives in a lot of ways almost took glee in the failure of the liberals when it comes to the vaccine. The difference for us is I was saddened by it. I want the vaccine to work and I want the vaccination to work. And so I was saddened and I criticized the liberal government on their rollout, but not with a, a sense of joy that I caught them doing something wrong, but a sense of sadness that they failed to, to do what was necessary to get people the help they needed. And this is where I think the conservatives and even the bloc, they are not coming across as, as committed to getting people the help they need, but more so getting caught up in playing games. And people see through those games and they see that that's not actually making their lives better. And I think that's where we've shown a difference. So some folks have said that the conservatives have gone down in support and that support's come towards us. Some people have said it's perhaps coming from the liberals, um, or maybe some folks are, are saying that people are, are more motivated now seeing that there's um, maybe uh, a party offering folks that have long been maybe discourage from voting because of cynicism, an opportunity, wherever it's coming from, where I'm honored that, that we've been able to, to really do something meaningful for people. Tell me about that cynicism. Let's take a 10,000 foot view on the topic of politics generally. How do we avoid the party over people politics that defined the last four years in the United States? A couple of things I think could help with that. One is when when parties and especially governments campaign on something or make a promise and don't follow through, it really feeds the, the cynicism that, oh, they're not gonna do it anyways. And so then people stop believing in uh, things being better. I, I think the real opportunity in this upcoming election will be that young people will make history. And, and young people often are those that are the least cynical. They, they still dare to dream big and, and hope for a better future. And I really rest a lot of my my hope and my optimism on the fact that young people will make history in the next election. And they have really shown over the past year a real re-engagement and activism from the Black Lives Matter movement to climate, climate justice rallies. There is a strong movement from young people. And I really believe that they're really the solution to cynicism, that their hope and their belief that we can do better, that we can dream bigger is really going to propel us forward. Well, then, may I ask a question from my politically aware 14-year-old daughter, then, who was thrilled to hear we were speaking, <laughs> uh, and who is also mortified now that I've released that information. Um, she asked me to ask you. Hi from me. What's her name? Olivia. Olivia. Hi, Olivia. I hope you're doing well. Olivia wanted to, to have an answer to this question. She said, young voters in the 2020 U.S. presidential election were super important. What are you doing to attract young voters in Canada? 
So first off, I'm making a declarative statement. I think they are already going to make, I believe that they're going to make history. Uh, I believe that they are engaged, they're frustrated, they feel fed up with politics of the past that has ignored them and has given them a worse lot in life. It's the first generation now where their opportunities to buy a home, to get a job are worse off than the previous generation. That has never happened in our history. So I feel like their frustration is going to to motivate what I believe is an historic turnout and a historic vote for young people in the next election. And what I'm doing on a personal note is I really look at every opportunity possible to connect to young people. So I've used all sorts of social media and different opportunities from live streaming to playing Among Us with AOC on Twitch. I really look at every opportunity possible to connect with people, to share our message, to hear from them. And I'll continue to do that. You have also been quoted as saying that young Canadians are fed up with what um, you call a rigged economy. What's rigged specifically and how do we fix it? Well, the economy to a young person looking at the wealthiest Canadians, the, the richest 44 families or 44 billionaires in Canada, increasing their wealth by over 66 billion in the pandemic as being something that does not sit right with them then when they have lost opportunities to find a job, that the jobs that used to work in the summer not not available for them anymore, when things are harder and harder for them, and then they see those at the very, very top, the ultra-rich, not pay their fair share, use offshore tax havens to hide their wealth, companies that make profits in Canada but don't pay taxes here, all of that, uh, that's those are systems that were designed that have allowed the richest to not pay their fair share. And then young people look at that and say, well, why is that the case? Why is it that someone that works a job has to pay their fair share? But as you become wealthier and wealthier, as you become the ultra rich, those at the very top, you know, you're Jeff Bezos of the world, you've got a company that operates and is one of the most successful, most profitable companies in the world that doesn't pay taxes virtually at all in Canada, despite making massive profits here. All that seems to a young person to be like, a system that is designed to enrich those at the very, very top and disadvantage those that are just trying to get by. And that seems really unfair. So what's the solution? Uh, Fair taxation really is to say the ultra wealthy have to start paying their fair share. Uh, Web giants should not get a free ride. If you think about it, a Canadian company, a Canadian tech company that operates an online platform has to pay their fair share here in Canada, Canada. But a foreign international corporation like Google, Netflix, Facebook can operate in Canada, make significant profits here, but not pay their fair share. It's effectively a subsidy to foreign international web giants. Why is that? Uh, so we need to make sure we've got a taxation system that's fair, closing the loopholes that allow for companies to make profits here and to hide them in banks in the Caribbean or other jurisdictions and not pay taxes. There was a recent court case uh, a couple of years ago where Canada took uh, a large corporate grocery store to court saying they owed over $300 million in taxes and they were able to establish that all the profit was made in Canada. All that profit was then put into a bank in the Caribbean and they effectively did that to hide their profits and to not pay their fair share. The bank or the judge accepted all of that and then said, the problem is, is that is entirely legal right now. 
And that's a problem. We've got a system that is, again, rigged to benefit those at the very top. And we need to stop that by real clear changes to the tax laws that will ensure that the wealthiest pay their fair share. And we can do that. It's very achievable. And we've seen some really big steps taken by Australia to make sure uh, Facebook pays their fair share for journalism. We've seen France propose uh, 3% revenue tax on web giants as a way to increase revenue and make sure they pay their fair share. And some say that that revenue tax is actually more effective than even a corporate tax. At the end of the day, there are real effective tools out there to make sure those at the very top pay their fair share and that we can reinstill some fairness in the system. You're talking essentially about the Netflix tax. You know, you mentioned Google, Amazon, etc. We are on the edge of the fourth industrial revolution. What though of the idea that Canada has an opportunity for Canadians to create their own equivalent to Netflix, Google, Amazon, leveraging the technologies of artificial intelligence, 5G wireless, and things like that. Can we not de-rig the system by incorporating industrial policy in this country that helps put us on the map in that respect? I think there is definitely a role to play to create incentives or supports for innovation in Canada, no doubt. But that doesn't take away from the importance of, of ensuring that we tax those that are making wealth or profits off of Canadians, but that aren't paying their fair share. I don't think that they're exclusive. And I think both need to happen. We need to look at countries around the world where innovation and entrepreneurship is supported. There are ways to do that. One of the ways actually we can really encourage entrepreneurship or innovation to join in in the the new wave of uh, opportunities presented by technology is building the infrastructure that allows for business to thrive. And one of those key pieces of infrastructure is, is high-speed internet accessible and available across the country. And that's something that I've really talked about as an important piece of infrastructure. If we have high-speed, quality, affordable internet everywhere in our country, then businesses can start up in rural communities. People can choose to live not in urban centers, but in other communities. People don't need to leave their hometowns and can start businesses there. So I think that uh, investing in a climate that supports entrepreneurship, supports startups, starts with the infrastructure needed, which part of that is access to capital for companies to start up, but also opportunities for accessing the tech sector by building the infrastructure that allows them that access. We certainly saw that digital divide as a result of COVID-19 forcing us to educate our children at home. Absolutely. We saw that access to high-speed internet is vital, not just for employment, uh, not just for accessing, accessing services, but also for kids to go to school, uh, also for connecting with people. It is It has become so vital that people have access to high-speed internet. It is a tool to access every every service from employment to education to healthcare with the advancements in telemedicine and moving towards more online resources. We know that uh, it is fundamental that everyone have, has access to high-speed internet. Mr. Singh, thank you so much for your time on the podcast today. Hey, it's a pleasure, I really enjoyed it. Jigmeet Singh is the leader of the federal NDP. Still to come from a physically distant C.D. Howe Institute, April 9th, we ask the question, is it time to change charitable foundations funding requirements? The webinar with John Hallward of Sector 3 Insights, Hillary Pearson, formerly the president of Philanthropic Foundations Canada, and Dan Piergorski, the director of public policy at the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy. For these events and more, go to cdhow.org.
I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.